1: Delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
2: Hey, folks! Welcome back to another episode of Die Green.
3: I'm Kate McCabe.
2: I'm Max Sussman. And as usual, we're super excited to have you with us on the show. So today's interview is with Monkin Magan.
3: Monken is a writer and documentary maker and a Gail Guar, which is the Irish for Irish language speaker. He has written books on his travels in Africa, India, and South America. He has most recently published a book called 32 Words for Field, Lost Words of the Irish Landscape. A book that I read and loved and I highly recommend you check it out too. It's really accessible to anyone that is interested in Irish culture in general.
2: And I thought I thought it was super cool. I don't I'm not an Irish language speaker and much to Kate chagrin, and I'm not currently studying the Irish language either. He will.
3: He will. But I day.
2: love how I Mark love my words. I love how um one of the fascinating things that comes through in the book is how many is the layers of meaning that are comprised within the Irish language. There are words that have meanings that go back hundreds of years. Layers of metaphor. It's obviously a very, it's a very poetic language in that way, wouldn't you say?
3: You know, I I definitely would. I would definitely agree with that. There's also a lot of deep connections to um, folklore and the other world and fairies.
2: We recorded this interview the day after um, seeing his perfor- a performance, that he's on tour in the United States called Aran August M. And so this is a show that Monkin does where he actually, uh, it's a performance. It includes a lot of Irish language, but it also involves the baking of a, of sourdough bread and the churning of butter. I don't know why I said it in the passive voice. He bakes bread and he and we all, as the audience, we all help churn butter. Um, and as uh, longtime listeners of the show know, I'm a avid sourdough bread baker. So um, the performance was excellent. And uh, the conversation was very wide ranging. Lots of stuff to talk about with him. I feel like we could have him back on the show. Even there was so much more that we could have gone into on any of the topics we were talking about. It was great.
3: Yeah. You know, one might also say, given your culinary background and your specific interest in Bread baking and sourdough bread in particular. My interest in Irish language, folklore, and history—you might say—that is an example of when our worlds collide. Food for thought.
2: Yeah, we share a lot of interests, and it was uh, it was a great conversation. So let's jump in.
3: Here's our interview with Monk and McGon.
2: Thank you so much for joining us on Die Green. Thank you. It's nice to be here in Ann Arbor. Yeah. yeah. In the real world, looking at you face to face. I know. This is... Oh, this is only the second podcast we've ever done where we're, like, actually sitting in the room with hmm. somebody. Every other one's been on Zoom. So. The, the pressure is so much higher. It means we're, we're meant to be, like, fully intimate
4: with each other. The audience is meant to hear the the sensuousness <laughs> of us being together. Do you know? We're, we can't
2: blame a dodgy <laughs> Zoom line.
3: We'll see how it goes. Yeah.
2: We wanted to ask how the idea for the show came about. Mm-hmm. And... How do you take the knowledge and the work that you've done in your writing and transform it into a performance? What was the process to create that? So like, yeah, for a long time, I've been interested in Irish language and Irish culture,
4: but they're all very abstract ideas. Like my big interest is, that I believe that all languages like Irish but all old languages can give these insights into the other world into the landscape into ourselves into our psyche and that's all very nice but it's all you can write that in books and develop it and all but I thought how am I going to explain these ideas to people <clears throat> and um, a few years ago I had a different idea I found out there were 4,300 words in Irish to describe someone and that most of them were negative and most were used at women by other women and again I thought okay I need to find a little ceremony to do that so I I did that which is a different story but um, I had all these concepts about language land and the insights and I decided I need to create a ritual to make people understand because I was a little bit involved with theatre for a while and I got just so disillusioned with theatre because theatre can be very formulaic you know the first act then the second act then you're going to have a drink in the bar and then the final and you, you certainly know what to expect so the great thing about ceremony and ritual is particularly if we're new to it we don't have an idea of what to, uh, to accept and all theatre was ritual. So I had the big ideas. I thought I need to form ritual. And it just happens, like my, my partner, Ashling Rogerson, she runs the Fumbly Cafe in Dublin. This cafe, which is like such a way, such a place for people to gather and to think and to develop new foods. So you can imagine a place like the Fumbly was big into fermentation and big into sourdough and big into all of this handcrafted, going back to artisan ways of producing food. So I was surrounded by her doing that, and me with my ideas in my head, and I thought, I need to find a way to combine these because all of her friends were a lot they're younger than me, and they were also interested in these artisan food things and of course the reason for the reason I thought that they were interested in artisan food techniques and products from longo was because they felt disconnected from the world like we all do, but particularly those in their thirties and the late twenties had no meaning. And so they'd go out and, you know, spend a few days on an organic farm, or they'd make a basket, or they'd churn butter. And those ideas of being rooted to the land are the exact same things that I want to talk about linguistically and theoretically and sociologically and abstractly. So I thought, let's meet the two of them. Let's, let's combine the two. And as well, Irish language is such a complex issue for Irish people. Like about twelve years ago, I made a TV series where I tried to go around, I tried to go around Ireland, just speaking Irish, and we had hidden cameras, and the reactions were really powerful, really strong. But I only realised when I went back into the edit room with the camera, we were looking at the camera that you know the secret camera that was picking up people, and was what I was seeing in people's eyes when I was looking when I was speaking Irish to them. I was seeing this mix of fear of guilt of shame of anger of love of wishing of desire of regret so i knew irish was a tricky tricky issue for people and i thought well what about if i just set up a ritual that could go for maybe three hours and i would just bake out bread there and people could come up to the table and have some of my bread and people could churn a bit of butter and they could talk to me about their feelings about irish or i could talk to them about irish um one way or the other So I had that idea and I started it in Limerick. The Abbey Theatre produced it and sent it on a tour. We brought it to Limerick and uh, I started baking the bread and I uh, had the butter there for people to churn. And I thought people would just come up for five minutes and talk to me and then go. But they didn't. They just kept on staying around. And then me, like a classic man, felt I was so interested in my ideas that I wanted to talk, tell my ideas rather than listen to them. So that's how it turned into a show. <laughs> I thought, I have an hour's worth of ideas I want to say. I don't really want to hear what the audience have to say until the very end. <laughs> so that's the, the long answer of uh, how it came to be. Like, there's no rational way you would think of doing it. And that's how it came.
3: You mentioned in your show, too, that soda bread isn't actually the traditional bread of Ireland. And so I was wondering if you could comment on your decision to to choose the making of sourdough mm-hmm. and butter.
4: Yeah, and so, like, if I'm doing this show in Ireland to a young audience, they're sort of okay about having this news broken to them about (laughs) sourdough. But, like, I started doing this tour in March in the United States, in Pittsburgh, and then to New York and then Albany, places where the idea, going around mainly... gaelic or irish american sites and the idea of telling them that soda bread isn't the national dish uh you know i knew around st patrick's day was not the it was not the best thing that there's not what they wanted to hear you know they immediately they thought oh a nice irish man's going to come and make <laughs> soda bread for us and probably have corned beef instead and cabbage <laughs> with it um So I did want to break that illusion. But as I said, it wasn't so important in in Ireland. But it's just because I realised I was going to bake bread. And of course, the first thing I was going to do was going to bake soda soda bread. That's what you'd think is associated with the land. And that was only when I looked into it and I thought this thing, that of course, baking soda is a modern chemical. So it's only really invented in the 1850s. It was widespread use in the 1870s, maybe the 1880s in Ireland. And so it was only then that people started using it. Now, the reason they jumped to it so quickly is because... You can't really say that we had a yeast or a sourdough culture in Ireland, and the reason that we wouldn't have is because we don't have the sun. You know, you need you need strong flour, you need high protein flour for yeast baking, as as people know, and for that you need the sun to dry it out in the hot months in July and August, and we don't have that. So we have soft flour, lovely soft flour that makes ideal soda bread. Um, in other words, if you're not depending on that process of the yeast eating the protein or the gluten and rising the bread, the baking soda or the baking powder, either of those have a different reaction. Soft flour, soft flour, soft flour and they still raise it. So that's why we depended so much on soda bread when it, once it became available. But clearly, we know from the old historical books that whenever the Normans, you know, we can think of France, we think of bread, we think of sourdough bread, or yeast bread, natural yeast bread, um, pan au levain, and... um, The first thing they do whenever the French go anywhere is they bring their whole customs with them. So when the France came to Ireland, the Cistercians and the Benedictines and the Christian monks, and mainly in the the 14th century, but then the Normans in the 12th century, they brought all of those food. They brought huge amounts of wine, not wine production, but huge amounts of wine with them. And they brought good flour and they brought baking. So we know from the old lovely 12th century castles, they have these bread baking ovens. Um, So that means, okay, it's been we had yeast bread before we had soda bread from the 12th century. But then the thing that brings us back longer is we know Ireland, like three, four thousand years ago, was surviving on uh, a bread because we can see the grain rows in the landscape. We can see seeds of particularly rye and einkorn and emmer um, and barley. Um, But some wheat, yeah, well, you know, emmer and einkorn, early forms of wheat. So we know they were baking, but it just seems like the archaeologists say, well, they must have been, it was a basic enough loaf. So they were just making a sort of griddle bread, a dough, and then baking it on the fire. Um, and again, from the if you read up on sourdough, we know now about all these different yeasts and bacteria and um, enzymes, the, sacrosomy- sac- sac- the lactobacillus and the, what are they, Sacra- saccharomyces. Thank you, exactly, that are in nice. it, yeah. All the different forms. Um so they are in the air, they are everywhere. They were going to f- hunt out that protein in the bread, and they were going to make the red bread rise. So naturally, automatically, once we had grain, we were going to have soda bread. I was sorry we were going to have sourdough bread, but no one ever thinks of that. And because sourdough is now so cool, and because archaeologically we can say that we did have a form of sourdough long ago, I thought this is ideal. like it's, it's historically true, and
2: um, it's also very en point or very in en vogue as well. <laughs> and the Irish um, names for. Places, physical places carry a lot of history as well. Um, Are there many Irish places named for food? And if so, what do you think this says about Irish language and culture? Mm, Yeah. And yeah, and like
4: place names in general, like the insights to place names. I was I was over in um, Brittany in February and I went to see the Salle de Grande, you know, this great salt, the sea salt that they've been producing there for three thousand years the same farmers in the exact same way you know drying in these little salt pools and you go to Salle de Guérante and they're very proud of it but it's in Brittany, so the name of the Breton name is there as well, and it's Gwen Ren. yeah, Gwen Wren. So the French people don't know what Giron means, it's just a place name, but you look at a Brittany, Brittany, Gwen Wren. Now, the Breton language and the Irish language separated over 2,000 years ago, but we can still see Ren means land. I just, it's, it's one of the Indo-European words that one knows, because uh, land, and then Gwen means, like the Gwen Paltro. In Wales, Gwen means fair haired. Gwen and Fionn are the same word. Fionn McCool, Gwen, the same word. So, Gwen means white or clear or transparent. So, basically, it means white land because there were these massive salt plains. So, place names wherever we are show us the farming practices that were happening there thousands of years ago. And unfortunately, no one has really done much research into the Irish place names except one man, except Martin Mocanomera. Uh, son of an amazing uh linguist and explorer of knowledge um <clears throat> and a brother a brother of other mu- great musicians a powerful family but he 's slowly finding these wor- these uh place names that give us either as, of, as hard, half food and half mythology like this the great um or oh, someone known Aeon Valig, um the the sort of the, the the place name of the one lonely Ras. and Ras, you know is a type of fish or a type of ras. so we know that the words show us that there was an that people knew exactly where the best food was to be got. So, like, there's a word buraija, and means it means a reef, an underwater reef that has a kelp forest growing above it, and that the, it's a type of reef and kelp ecological marine structure that both the um, pollock and the rass love. So a fisherman in Connemara can point out at a, at a baraita to you, which we, we it's just, for me and you, it's a sea, but they know where, the, before echo radars or anything, they knew where the, the, the baraita were, and they knew at any time they could go out there in a boat and there was just going to be this horde of mangachi and runnachy. So uh, runnach mackerel and mangoch, um pollock. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was a code. Like, all you needed to know was the place names or the words where these places were, and you were guaranteed food. And it makes it clear then when we think about the famine, like we think, oh, Ireland is a coastal land. Why were people hungry during the famine? Um, and you know, if you ask Irish Americans that. Irish Americans can sometimes think, "Oh, my, my, my grand, my great grandparents were either lazy or inept or ignorant or something." There's a tendency for us. It's a, it's a post-colonial traumatic survivals guilt that we blame the previous ones. But looking at the place names, realizing, "My God, these people knew exactly where the breast tansy was, the tansy herb was, which was used to preserve meat." Tansy has Leaches out a smell that will then stop insects going near it and laying their eggs on it so you'll never get maggots it'll never rot or where the best shellfish were or where all the different types of seaweeds at different time of the year were so they absolutely knew their landscape they knew where the best food was and they had encoded it in these place names for so long so you know what that what well, you chose is okay during the famine it wasn't lack of knowledge they knew all of the shellfish along the shore they knew all of the seaweeds all the different ones at different time of months the best times to have them and they knew the fish and where to get them but of course first thing is So much of the coastline was owned by landlords, so they didn't have access. Then the second thing, those that had managed to build up, these were subsistence farmers. We know about subsistence in Africa. They had, you know, two cows, sheep, a few hens. So they didn't have anything else. But the few who had a boat, well, they would have had that boat for the first year, could have fished. Then when the potatoes failed, you know, in 44, 45, 46, by the second year, they had to sell the boat. The boat was gone. And so then you have no option. And then by the third year, you're too weak to go out to the sea. Um, So, yeah, we know that they knew about the food. It wasn't lack of food. It was was other elements.
3: In your book, 32 Words for Field, you talk about growing up, learning Irish and about your family connections and the history there. And, you know, as you just explained, there is a lot of connections between the Irish language and the landscape and place names. I also know that you have, I believe you built your own house um, on land that you purchased. Is it a straw bale house or...
4: It was, yeah. My first house that I built in 97 was a house. I, I knocked it after a few years. Okay. Yeah.
3: And so I, I'm just curious, did you, where did your own environmental ethos come from? Did that come out of your learning about Irish or did it come from somewhere else?
4: Yeah. So... You know, I would—I was brought up in this very Irish family where my grandmother had been fighting for freedom and fighting for the language, and then her grand—her uncle was doing so. So, and you know, it was, I was just with the Irish language and it was West Kerry, and it was a little bubble. And so, like anyone, you rebel against that. So I wanted to get—I wanted to get away some from that, but really, I just wanted to get away from the smallness of suburban Dublin. I grew up in Donnybrook in Dublin, and I wanted to get out. So I—the fr- and I was, you know. A, I realized that if I didn't get out, I would just end up depressed, end up going into a deep dive. So I managed, I realized that there were trucks going across Africa. And So when I was 19, I got in the back of an ex-army truck and drove the whole way through Morocco, through Algeria, through the Sahara Desert, down into Togo and Benin, into Cameroon, Central African Republic, into Zaire or the Congo, and straight to Kenya. And if you do that, suddenly your eyes are blown open to a whole other way. Like the first time you arrive in Morocco and you see Bedouin are just local Berber farmers dressed in traditional clothes like would have been worn in the Old Testament, minding their goats. And I thought, God, that's the image we have of St. Patrick, you know, coming fifth century. And that opened me entirely. So I spent the next three years living in South America, living in India and realizing what the hell would I go back to this world in Ireland and get a mortgage and tie myself down when the majority of the world are living closer to nature. So that's what opened my mind to those sort of things. And particularly, I ended up on, a, on the running in, in a, a sort of an organic farm on the Ecuadorian-Peruvian border. We had about, I think, 26 different types of fruits and we were growing coffee. And there was a San Pedro cactus. This hallucinogenic cactus was been grown up in the mountains. So there were various people coming through. And I, we had the farm and we had a youth hostel. And I'd look after this. And I met a Canadian there from British Columbia. And so I, later I went up to BC and lived in the, in the Slocan Valley, in the Kootenay Mountains, in this sort of, you know, an eco hangout, a sort of a new age, a sort of a hippie dropout place where, where they were growing cannabis, organic cannabis. And so that opened my mind yet yeah, to so much, because that's why I come back to Ireland, then my granny dies, this great socialist Republican revolutionary. She leaves me £10,000 and I use that to buy my 10 acres and to plant my oak forest and to build my little straw bale house, because that's
2: what all the eco people have been doing in BC and elsewhere. I was really struck by um, this phrase, and if I if I mess it up, you'll let me know, but <laughs> um, the Irish language as being suited to describing a world of happenings, not things. And I love the connection to the process of sourdough bread and, and how that relates to that. But I also was looking around for a reference to that phrase to see, because it just kind of struck in me. And, it, and you also talked about this in your show, but that phrase also describes the world at the level of kind of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted, was hoping you could talk a little bit about the <laughs> connection between those two wor- worlds, the way the world of Irish language and the mm-hmm. world of quantum physics. First of all, how do you, how did you, Make that connection, and what is the connection in your mind? Mm-hmm. Um, and I,
4: I, when I hear you say you're looking around for a reference, and you will be looking for a long time for a reference. <laughs> thank God, I'm not an academic. I think there's a tiny chapter of like you know, sort of vague references at the back of the book. No, no, nothing's nothing. I was going to say nothing is made up. It's what it sort of probably is. But so, as you say, like. We realize any old language, when we try and get deep into an old language, and particularly an old language like Irish, which is so immersed in mythology, then we realize that the rational world, the the, the time span, the, the um, linear time span breaks down. Like you just need to read any Irish myth and you realize, oh, wait there, the linear, there's no linearity to this. This is about bigger things. It's about, if there is any linearity, it's to do with seasons and it's to do with cyclical seasons. So that's why, you know, the dawn in Irish culture, the, 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 begins, the, the day begins at night because everything, the womb, the birth of the human begins from darkness in the night. The day, and in so many Native Indian, Native American cultures too, the same. So that's why like, it's all about Ihauna, Iha Nolig, which is Christmas is Iha the night before Christmas Eve. Um, Halloween, the big festival of this, the Feast of All Saints on the 1st of November. It's Halloween, it's the night before. The thing begins at the night. And it's not just in Irish. So many cultures have that. It comes out of the darkness. We, with our electric alarm clocks, believe everything begins at dawn, you know, when the sun rises. But it's about the darkness. And so that's why the year, you know, begins often in winter and comes out of the winter and then the, is given birth in the form of Bridget. in the form of So this idea of everything being circular and also the idea of things not being quite physical, that at any time the magical worlds can, can seep into it. And that's, we know that because every anyone who's asked any old person in Ireland, they'll tell about coming home late at night and seeing either a light emerge from the bog, the, the Liam, the Supog, the Will-o'-the-Wisp, or a little man coming out of the bushes or a fairy or something coming out of the sky. This idea of other entities and other elements and other layers of the world reappearing and reappearing like there's that classic idea in Ireland which again you go to Connemara and fishermen will still tell you they see it which is High Brazil you know High Brazil the island off the southwest coast of Ireland which was a a supernatural island that was there and wasn't there so like from the from about the 12th century on until the 19th century um, boats, naval ships from the, Brit- from the British and from Portuguese and Spanish went in search of it because we in our mythology talked High Brazil, yeah? So the rational bloody Europeans are like, oh, it exists. We will go. It. We will chart it. We will put a flag on it. So there's all of these, you know, um, colonial uh, crusades to try and find the has- uh, uh, to try and find high Brazil with the imprimatur of the Spanish king or of the English queen. And um like, the Irish are going, why are you going to see it? Like, it exists there, but it doesn't always exist there. It exists every seven years, and then it disappears back into the mist, and then it reappears. So, like, <laughs> it's not very hard to make a leap between uh, things existing and not existing. And, you know, Schrodinger's cat is the is the exact same idea. Both in the box, Schrodinger's cat exists alive and exists not dead until the observer Looks at it, so it just seems, and the you know the other quantum physics great ex- explanation we all see on youtube is that with <clears throat> the waveforms, you know reality is in waveforms. so depending on when you look at the waveform, it either is there or it isn 't there because waves go up and down, so and you 're static and when you 're observing it, so we know that science is now realizing the observer principle that we our observation of a phenomenon or a piece of the world affects the world because it, it, it because we are static and the wave is is going up and down like as, as better best as I can explain it. And then we know that um, with the um, with the Irish language, it's true exactly. It's to do with like anything happens because it's a dream world and in a dream world there's not rationality. The one final thing I want to say about that is that this idea of a linear world as opposed to a circular world will will. Uh, any, anyone who's actually tried to explain sourdough baking to someone else will understand that. Because, you know, someone is keen, they get their starter, they're keen to learn sourdough baking. And they say, so how long do I leave the leaven starting? And you go, well, you know, depends on the weather, depends on the mood, but between four hours and 14 hours, sort of. OK, and they just about get that. And then we have, OK, so they have the starters to the leaven, then the leaven to the dough. How long do you leave the leaven to the dough? Well, like you said, just the quality of the water, the atmosphere at the time, whether you have to go out and do something else, whether you want to give it, a re, whether you overprove it by 10 hours and then have to put it in the fridge or refold it. There's no, there's that n- you can the time in sourdough baking is the same as like how long a piece of string is. It is infinite and it is limited depending on one's perspective.
3: Well, I have a lot of thoughts right now. So <laughs> one is sort of a comment and that one is from your book. But, you know, when you were talking about this idea of time being linear versus time being cyclical, it, it reminded me of an essay that I read yesterday or the day before by Robin Wall Kimmerer in Emer- Emergence magazine. It's called Ancient Green. And she's talking about lessons that people can learn from mosses in terms of how to survive in our current times. She speaks to this idea about indigenous cultures, believing that time is cyclical. In Western cultures, people tend to think of um, time as a line. But if you go back to indigenous cultures and you're thinking about this cyclical, you know, the cyclical pattern means that the answers that we need actually are already here. That makes me think about, you know, I took her point about the mosses, but also about a lot of what you talk about in your book and in your work with the Irish language and some of these, these both messages that are encoded in them. And also the understanding that, that people have, especially older people with, with their words that are disappearing.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that, like it's, what's funny is that that cyclical idea of time is in so many indigenous cultures all around the world. And like the one thing that we've often tried to get our head at is, is, prophecy or even like the Mayan prophecy or even when in a an, a, a gypsy a gypsy woman in a booth seeming to know something about your, your father, your mother. Like I've had spiritual channels telling me things about my father that no one could ever have known. And so we think, how does that work? Like that bursts our mind from a rational perspective. But if we do seem realize that every single old culture on earth has an idea that time isn't linear and that may we can understand that makes more sense about why even at death why we might feel closer to the loved one so sometimes if it's in circles then those circles could possibly approach each other and then move further away it's a it's a really hard concept for us as rational Western overeducated uh, linear minded conditioned people to get our heads around. But I think there is something there.
3: And then the other thing I was thinking about while you were talking is the chapter that you wrote about dancing words. And you know I was really fascinated um, by the experience you had with the flour in the speaker when you were making bread, and and some of the other things that you talk about in the book about like the impact of language and the spoken word on particular places. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about about what happened with you from the flower.
4: Yeah. So as I said, I always had a feeling that I feel different speaking Irish as opposed to English, and it's actually in my belly. So if I'm in West Kerry, uh, I just don't feel good speaking English. I feel a little bit nauseous is too strong a word, but just my belly isn't settled, you know? Whereas, um, so what's you know if you, you you feel it in in your body? There's some word in yoga for that, but I can't remember. Um, and when I'm in England, when I'm in Dublin, and I speak Irish again, it feels a little bit alien. So it's almost like the Irish language is in the ground in 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 in, 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 du- in West Kerry and not in Dublin. And um, so I'm keeping on trying to think how do you know the effect of these words. And when I hear when I turn on Radio the the TV channel, the radio station, and I hear the profundity and the musicality and the vibrations of the Irish language from my West Kerry area, I feel them running through me. Whereas if I feel, if I hear the Irish from Donegal or for a different place, I don't feel it. It's very much like how you sense different breads or you know grain in a field or a, a lettuce in a good garden and I just feel that there's a vibrancy to it. So I was thinking, I know these things, but they're very hard to, to put them into words. And then, as you say, I happened to be baking. I, like through my childhood, I was always baking cookies, always different. Except we didn't have the word cookie, you know, biscuits was all mm-hmm. back then. Except I had one cousin who had her dad had been on the Blasket Island and she was a, a baker in Chicago. And she brought us with these words about that you put peanut butter and you would put chocolate chips in biscuits. So we had the word cookie. But anyway, as I was baking, some flour dropped onto a speaker on the radio. And I could see the flower dancing. So it was one of those, you know, the paper speakers on the on the cheap radio, the plastic cover had broken off it. And the flower was dancing up on the radio. But the the patterns that they were making weren't random. It wasn't just like dust bumping up and down on a on a drum or something. <clears throat> they were making these patterns that reminded me of they were sort of geometric, they were sort of circular and patterned and and complex. And it was only later that that I realized what they reminded me of. But what I saw was that. And I'll get to that in a second, but um I saw that the words, the patterns seemed different depending on what I was listening to. And at the time I was listening to Radio Nguelzuchter, the Irish language radio station, coming from West Kerry, giving this beautiful litany about a local folklore element from a from a local person for who had been on the Blasket Island. And I just saw the harmony in that, you know, the way there's a lot of a lot of people to talk about the the sort of slightly dubious research that was done in water patterns in Japan Sugomoto or someone. It's not quite sure that sometimes if you pass, you know, good vibrations to the water, it looks like that the molecular patterns are um, more elegant and formal. I'm not sure that has entirely stood up, <laughs> but. Um, the um, but the, 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 I was seeing something similar. I was seeing the patterns were more beautiful, and then it was only later. I now live in the Midlands of Ireland, that's where I bought my land, and maybe about 10 miles up the road is Loch Crew. and Loch Crew is a passage tomb in the landscape. We call them tombs, like Newgrange and Nouth and Dowth, but they're not tombs. We've never found bones in them. We've found only minimal ashes of ceremonial ashes. found a few bones, but not like it would have been a tomb of a lot of things. We found other more interesting things. So they were ritual sites. They were probably ceremonial sites. And my one, Lock like so many of them, it's in the form of a passage going down into a chamber type space, a womb-like space. And the passage gets filled up only once a year, either in the equinox the, the equinox or the um, solstice, when the sun, you know, enters the passage. The male sun sends its organs, sends its phallus into the, the vulva, the vaginal pathway, down into the womb and impregnates, warms up the land. You know, it's down there and looking at the patterns, which you only see, without, now we have artificial light, we have torches, it's flashlights, but before that, The only time you saw it was when the sun entered the chamber, illuminated the light (coughs) and the stones, and the patterns on the stones were so similar to the ones I was seeing on the speaker when the Irish word's being said. These gorgeous, cylindrical, spatial, um, yeah, otherworldly, complex, uh, elegant patterns that were there. Now, that was, it was, it's just, it was something that caught my imagination. I can never prove that there's any connection to them. But what is interesting about these chambers, these underground chambers, that, as I said, were warmed or that were fertilized by the seed of the sun once a year. When I say once a year, for probably two days on either side of the solstice or the equinox. Different sites are orientated towards either the solstice, the December or the equinox um, in the end of September. And... um, Oh, yeah. What was the final thing I would say? They, they were, um, oh, yeah, because what they're now doing is archaeologists in Ireland have been tracing some research that's been done in the North American con- con- uh, continent that we believe, you know, the way uh, native tribes in, in the state, in North America, along the Mississippi had these mounds too. And it was believed things were, when, you, when you, and even Central America, if you put things in the temples, seeds, they tend to sprout quicker. Um, so something happens, the the electromagnetics within that chamber formed by the stones and formed by, so there are alignments in the earth that we're not quite attuned to anymore, um, seem to make the seeds furt- um, sprout quicker and then grow quicker in the first few weeks. So possibly, so people have now put the seeds into the, well, they've done it first in the temples in Central America, and then they've tried it in Newgrange and in Lough, in Lough Crewe in Ireland. And they're realising it does impact the seed. So, you know, clearly maybe bones were in these places, but we need to think everything was interconnected. So oh, you wanted everything to grow. You wanted spring to come and grow. You, you wanted the the phallus, the sun to warm the earth. You wanted your seeds to grow. You wanted to give honour to the ancestors, the really key ancestors who had died and possibly put some of those in. So you have food, ancestor worship, the magic world, the intergalactic connection with this burning and star at the center of our solar system, all combining in these sites that we're only beginning to decipher and learn about now.
2: Yeah, I love the idea of when you were describing the um the patterns formed by the sound. <clears throat> we were at a science museum with our with our kid recently and there was this um it was something involving like iron filings and the magnet and a magnet and you mm-hmm. and so the mag the iron filings would reveal the magnetic the shape of the magnetic field. And I love this idea of um, you know, just playing around with the idea of the hidden and the scene in your show—it's one of the things that you kind of go off of a lot. It's it's the way that the Irish language can describe those two worlds. Yeah, and it'd be so lovely, though,
4: wouldn't it? If we, because we sort of feel that when we go and grow, walk in a gar in a veg garden in someone's veg garden, you can see the bounty you can see the re- the the radiance of some people's vegetables and you can also see the radiance of a highly fertilized field of nitrogen and phosphorus where it does boom out it's like almost neon in its luminance luminous unfortunately they're not sustainable and they're probably they're not good for our insides but we all of us can see that the patterns of nature that form flowers and food can actually come in different ways you can have a very everyone knows it from their house plants they look at their geranium or their spider plant and they say oh it looks a bit week it looks a bit sick so it's how almost as you said the iron filings the elemental particles that form together to form our food or our houseplants, or our trees come together and we all instinctively know that if we have a vegetable that is thrive, thriving that all of the elemental particles all of the metal filings almost are in a line or in their right harmony it's going to be healthier um sort of more vibrant food
1: I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate a distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. A is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
3: I'm not sure if you would agree with this, but it seems as though, you know, in the past, several years there's been more of a resurgence of interest in people learning to speak the Irish language and you talk a lot about these lost and disappearing words and I'm wondering if there are any other efforts underway in Ireland to try to preserve some of those words beyond the work that you're doing yourself
4: and I'm going to answer the previous thing too because I remembered and it's a bit it's definitely off topic and it's a bit edgy but I'm going to try and explain a concept so I don't know do you remember there was a in the 60s or 70s maybe no, the 70s and 80s there was a channeled entity in Ithaca New York I think called Seth and he spoke to a person called Jane I can't remember what her name was Jane Roberts yeah and channeled all these things there was people loved spiritual channelings in the 70s and the early 80s and um, then in, in, in Colorado there's been one in the 90s and 20 and the 2000s and he said something Now, Spirit Channeling is basically the ravings of a lunatic. You know, you could decide. or is great wisdom. It's one or the other. It's up to you. But um, he said that most countries, you know the way when you go on a battlefield site and you feel, if you're attuned, you can feel a certain negativity, a certain heaviness in certain battlefield sites around the world. So they say that landscape can remember. And actually, now that I think of this, science is proving it, isn't it? Science goes in and what do they do? They can record, how do they do this? You know the way, the science that recently, you can have a, a plant in a room and it can pick up the language, there was the, the actual words that were said in the room because it goes into some vibrations of the growth of the leaf and almost you play it back like a record later. Like That's that's physically known. So in the same way, it seems the landscape records what happens on it. And so the, sometimes we feel good about being in a particular landscape and sometimes we don't. It can have an element of the trees and things growing in it. But actually what they say, what science seems to show is a recording. And that would that would make clear why, you know, I talk in my show about how Irish has some knowledge that seems to go back nine or 10,000 years and how we know that Aboriginal cultures have knowledge that they can f- read in the landscape. They can almost pick up from the grooves of the record of the landscape that tell them information from uh, 25,000, 30,000 years ago. Ireland has a different form of resonance. So, you know the way Iceland and Ireland are the place where you most often talk about seeing fairies? Like, and in the, way, the same way I went to find my meditation, I went to find it in India. India has the Himalayas. There seems to be a resonance there that makes it easier to go to see these bigger thoughts. That's why people go up into the caves there to channel. And Ireland and Iceland are the places where people see sea fairies. Like, and we know that every culture in the world had little magical sprites, had nature beings. And Ireland and, and, you know, Iceland. And Iceland is, you know, 53% Irish, basically the same people. The idea that we have leprechauns is possibly because that other world... So normally there's a covering of almost human... Past human memory, human mess on the land that we feed in, and Ireland doesn't have that. That magical resonance, the actual spirit resonance, might be stronger in Ireland, and that's why whenever you meet a German or an American and say, "Oh, I went to Ireland. I just felt the magic," we dismiss all that. It could actually be true, and if it is true, then if we grow vegetables in Ireland, they. Potentially, have a different resonance than other countries. This is all very far-out, weirdo thinking, and it's only at the very beginnings of it. But there could be something in that that we should all bear in mind. We in Ireland are just starting to learn how to grow vegetables in these new ways—you know, new old ways—using the compost, using um, in tune, getting in tune with nature. But it's worth saying. To answer your question now, that
2: I've dropped my my sort of weird idea. <laughs> did, did you get the weird idea? Oh like, yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah. You know, and honestly, it was it was making me think about. Um, the conversations that are going on around rewilding, I mean, that really puts that whole thing in a completely different perspective.
3: Well, yeah. and it's its just interesting to me, perhaps this is a little bit of an aside, but the the landscape that that people think of when they think of Ireland, especially people in the United States, is these just miles and miles of patchwork green fields right. when really, you know, we do know that at least 80% of the country was forested at one point. So the current landscape really isn't, doesn't look at all like it did for our ancestors
4: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's yeah
2: yeah exactly
4: yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah an island is Now, it is, the potential of it is, it's the great learning landscape. That was the word that the Burren used, don't they, for the Burren area, learning landscape. And we think, you know, saints and scholars, it was where people came. You go to the Iron Islands and you have the little graveyard of the Spanish. You know, you go to other parts of Ireland, you see all of these Italians, all these French monks coming there to study. We have accounts of Egyptians coming to Ireland. It was a place you came to learn because... Maybe because books libraries were there, but possibly because there's something in the landscape. you that's why people go to Ireland. they get revived in a very different way than if they go to the Canary Islands or if they go to Florida. So maybe the future of Ireland, if we do rewild, if we do come in contact with our old connection with the land and we do allow the land rise up again and and get its true form back, people will come to learn, not to learn from the books, but just to, to read, to be reconnected, which is actually why they go up and down the wild Atlantic way anyway, to be reconnected. And so food would play a part in that. It's the, the learning food almost, which uh, again, we're all coming to realize now with a new understanding of well, mushrooms and things that actually food, there are food that can, and all you know, the super berries and all, they are food that can actually make us think in new ways and more expansive ways. But I, I realize I didn't answer your question about the Irish language. <laughs> which I can if you want to. Yeah
3: I'm, yeah, I'm curious.
4: Yeah. So, so much is happening. So, as you said, I've been interested in the Irish language, but it's always been, a, for the rest of the people, it's been a marginal concern. And so had I I make my little television programmes for TG Cahar for the Irish Language Channel, and they just watched by that little audience. And when I brought out my book, Thursday Words for Field on the Irish Language, the publisher, Gill, who know the market, the Irish market, inside out, they said that it'll sell 5,000 copies. And it's great. We wanted to sell 5,000 copies. It's going to be a great success for over two and a half years. And like rather it sold 5,000 copies before it ever reached the shops. And then it sold again and again. So something has happened. And um, in every field and everyone who's anyway involved in the Irish language feels this. COVID had a big part to play in it because people like COVID and then 2019, 2019 was It was the year when the U.N. really came out with these big, uh, you know, statements about the future of of the world and climate change. And it was a time that Extinction Rebellion, this protest, took off in London and then in Ireland and in European countries. It didn't so much in the States, was my understanding. XR was smaller here. But um, it made people, particularly young people, reevaluate. And the things, all our certainties that was, one, the future, we realised, oh, no, the future isn't certain. And then comes along COVID and we realise, oh, our freedom isn't certain. Oh, our health isn't certain. Oh, our economic um, ability isn't certain. Nothing is certain. So in the world, when all of the life certainties collapse and all of the previous ones, like the religion and banks and uh, institutions had all collapsed before that, you are lost in a storm. So what you do then is you turn back to your krama fertile, your stout oars, your rootedness that connects you to the world. And people are, you know, I suppose one thing you go onto the yoga mat, but that's another person's culture, practicing yoga. It's very nourishing for us but where people are also looking at their own cultures and so in ireland young people in their 20s and 30s thinking wait there we had we had a language and a mindset and a way of looking at the world that was elements were indigenous like indigenous is a strong word to use and the more and more i talk with native peoples in, in canada the united states i realize some of them say you are, of course, entitled, if you go back to a culture which honored the land and worked in a sustainable way with the land, they say that's indigenous, whereas other people will have different definitions and say, you know, we shouldn't use the word. But clearly, we, are, we realize, oh, wait there, we've been on this land for four and a half thousand years. We've been speaking this language for two and a half thousand years. We are connected to the people who were there before us. We're the Bronze Age people, but the Neolithic people who built the wonderful tombs that we now go for replenishment and for a sense of wonder to. We are connected to those two in some strands of our DNA, but also in the stories and the mythology they have seem to have shifted into our own. And not only that, but some of their words might have actually come down into the Irish language we're speaking. So that is like... It's like a power train of energy that, of course, young people who are lost and want new answers and don't believe in the simple conditioning and simple solutions that they were offered are connecting back to. But you asked me for practical examples of that. I mean, one practical one is the pop-up Geailtzachtí, mm-hmm. where young people come together in a bar and speak Irish. And there's always been Cunna no and no Gaelic League places that where you spoke Irish, but over time, they got very uh, out of touch with young people. They were all about people wearing tweed and people wearing the fauna to show they were Irish and people either being a bit Republican or just listening to trad music and having no interest in anything else in other cultures. That's all gone in the new generation. But Pop-Up Gaeiltecht is, yeah, just it's a pop-up Gaeiltecht, Pop-Up Irish speaking. And sometimes what happens, they go to a pub and they go to the pub owner and say, we'd like to put up a pub of Gaelteacht in your pub. And the pub owner sort of shrugs a bit and saying, ah, no, no, that's going to be, you know, you lot of extreme Gaelgory and wearing tweed and sandals and beards. And uh, so, but they have won, they do one, and suddenly they realise, the, the, the bar realises that there's 5,000 5, euros dropped behind the bar that night or something. and then they rush <laughs> it. Right. The word goes out, every pub, every, the coolest like hip venues and coffee houses want the pub of Gaelteacht.
2: <laughs> there's money in it. Like the, like the pink pound. So something that comes up in your work is this idea that language doesn't just describe, it actually creates. And uh, it creates, you know, the world around us through our own subjective vision of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and one, which is a great idea, but you know, it's sort of one of those things that might, you might agree with academically, but not really understand or experience. Mm-hmm. So, and what sort of struck me was when you were describing the idea that directions um, in the Irish language incorporate your your directionality with relation to the sun mm-hmm. it was one of those things where i would i never really thought about seeing the world in that way can you Describe that and talk about it in the, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that idea about language
4: making reality, it's its a controversial claim. You know, it was the Sapir-Whorf theory in the 50s. Linguists argued over it forever whether, yeah, whether words can affect our brain or not. And the simple examples, like, you know, with color, like don't they say the Russians have different tones of blue, so they will see those different tones of blue. Um, but we'll never, linguists will always argue over it. But as you say, there's some clear examples where you can see, well, for one example, if you take a language that you do need to accept the other world, that the existence that this physical world isn't the other only reality, then that by definition that's going to affect your reality because you constantly need to take into account, oh yeah, I am part of this physical world, but I'm constantly remembered reminded that there are these fairy uh, entities there, that there are ways of slipping into other realities. So that is going to change one's perspective. But a more even grounded way first still is this idea of directions, as you say. So in Irish, to give directions, you need to orientate yourself with this with this burning star at the centre of our solar system, with, with, with the sun. So let's say, if you're, if I'm going on my holidays to West Kerry, I'd always say, oh, do yas, to I'm going southwest on my holidays. Or ta un bo here, so the cow is in the field to the east. Or tá ma dola a going northwards home. Now that means you always need to know where you are in relation to the planet, and that's pretty potent to be. Oh, I am I am an individual on a globe that is part of a solar system. It's constantly moving. And this sun and me, I am constantly moving in relation to the sun. And at any moment, I need to know where that sun is. That is going to affect everything. Like the rest of us, the only time we ever tune into that is if we're about to rent or buy a new house and we take out the app of our phone to see is it orientated south. Once, maybe every 10 years. Whereas in Irish... Well, when the Irish are constantly tuned, I say that that's a nice point. But if you were to ask me now, which way is
2: north, which way is south, I'm not so sure I have it. It's It's funny because the Irish are. Are notorious for giving imprecise or sort of ambiguous directions in English. In English, yeah, it's always in relation to the nearest pub, you know. So
4: you go down to McDade's <laughs> and you turn at O'Donnell's, and then you go. So maybe, maybe my 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 um, academic research got confused, and it's actually the pub rather than the sun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's really funny.
0: Yeah.
4: Great, but what I do, I didn't answer your question properly about you know, are there elements? of the natural world or the farmed world that we are losing and are there people going out to find those um first I you know I did a little bit of during Covid I did this project Sea Tamagotchi where I went out to the fishermen to along the Mayo Donegal and Galway coasts to ask them about fishing practices now my book 32 words for field has all of these lovely ideas about words but most of it is from books or the internet it's not while not, I'm an, not an academic I'm not a folklorist I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist. So I just get things from from the internet. I don't even get them from, really from dense books. But this project, See Tamagotchi, because I had nothing else to do during COVID, I went out to see the fishermen. First, I just go out to a, a region, uh, like North Donegal, South Donegal, Galway, and I ask people, who should I talk to? It's so easy. Every single person names the one person. We all know in our community there's only one or two people who have all the knowledge. Often they were ex-school teachers, or they were the lonely gardener, or the lonely fisherman, whoever knew, knew every place name, who was asking from the age of five, they were asking their grandparents for all the different words. They often had they often had a grandfather or a grandmother who, who encouraged them to think like this. So I just go to them, turn on my little microphone, and they drop masses of knowledge. Like on Iron Island, the vastness of all the knowledge they gave me about salting pollock and salting wrasse um, and salting mackerel and how it was done and what time of the year it was done and how they're still doing it, what the best salt is, how the best treatment, how you will wrap it then in rahanach, in ferns, and how the lovely brownness of the ferns goes into it. And But I tell them, what about the carcinogenic? how the fern, the coils of the ferns are carcinogenic? So, you know, They knew that, they just trimmed those off. So that was just that one element of salting. But then someone else tells me about eel fishing and all the different ways of, of doing eel fishing. Someone else writes all the different ways of collecting periwinkles, are all the different forms of dillusk. You know, dillisk, this wonderful sweet seaweed. Well, pepper that the form of it is wonderfully. It's not actually the same seaweed, but uh, we have the same name. Um, but dillis, there's about three different types of dillisks formed at different times of the year. And in Tory Island, they'll tell you what rock is the best place to get it and which is the benefits and the attributes of each one. So the first thing is it's very easy to access this knowledge because there's only a few experts and they are old and they're dying to tell the news. Mm. Are there people finding it out? Uh, sort of, like the Folklore Commission... Got so much information and still in the archives of the Folklore Commission in UCD in Dublin, University College Dublin. There's a lot there. But what I miss is what I'm aware of is the women's knowledge isn't so much there. Because, like in my fishermen, it was all men. I sought out women, but the women said, ah no, go to the men. The men with the men were all out at sea. That was fair enough. You know, they they um there was one great project in Guido and Donegal. Women were trying to find all the land names of the fields. Um, but uh, yeah, see, women get busier when they're retired. Men just sit around and do nothing, you know. <laughs> the women had amazing... So many committees are looking after other neighbours who got sick. Or, it's really interesting. But anyway, I am aware that um, the, the Folklore Commission people from uh, from Dublin, from the 1930s on, were mostly men. And, of course, they went to the like a Peg Sayers, the great storytellers, the great Siannachar. But the women... The storytellers were open and honest, but if there was a priest in the room, or if they knew that a priest was going to listen to it later, they would be a bit coy about what they'd say. Or otherwise, when they were very honest, and Peg Sayers, the great West Kerry storyteller, was enormously frank and honest, but then the male transcribers would trim all that away, thinking, oh, that's not suitable to come from a woman's mouth. So we've lost a huge amount of women's, just even simple things about life, about motherhood for a child, about all the different ways of breastfeeding, about um, diarrhoea in a baby. All those words are gone. They're not gone, sorry, they haven't been recorded and they would be pretty easy to get. They require just two things. They require either someone with good knowledge of the Gaeiltocht, with knowledge of the people, even if they don't have Irish, or otherwise someone with excellent Irish, ideally from that Gaeiltocht, from either, you know, the Donegal, the Connemara or the West Kerry Gaeiltocht. And to go to the women, and the women are chatty. The women are up front, as long as, you know, if you're another woman talking to them and you either, you know part of their world, you're not being too judgmental, either have their language or you have an idea of their society. Um, and I'm constantly encouraging people to do that. And I'd say the people who, t- who come to me, they're often, they're often sort of yoga practitioners with a few words of Irish who have no idea of West Kerry and no words of Irish. And they're useless to me. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the most willing. They'll do anything. They'll happily drop everything. But, you know, yeah, you need, I think, someone... Um, and hopefully they will do that. And hopefully, I do believe all the young growers, you know, there's so many new people in Ireland interested in growing veg, and they find the older men coming up to them. You know, the curious, some of the locals will just dismiss them entirely. And the older men who never quite bought in to the whole spreading of 10, 10, 20 and the buying ever bigger, more farm machinery. They seek out the young ones and they tell them things. So I do hear, if you meet any guard any grower in the West Coast, in anywhere in Ireland now, they'll tell you about the old man who said, oh yeah, you use that compost. I used to, I used to make compost that way. I used to use straw this way. What about all the slugs in the straw? And the knowledge is coming back, I hope.
3: That's great.
2: Um, I have one last question. <laughs> yes. Um, I was going to make a joke about your next book being called like, about 43 words for diarrhea or something. <laughs> but Is that your question? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> want, um, just in terms of, you know, you're, you're on tour here in the United States. And I was wondering what you hope uh, people would take away from the show and the book. And whether Irish Americans, Irish speakers, and people who don't fit into any of those categories, uh, whether you hope they take away the same thing or different things mm-hmm. from the book and the performance. So if I have an agenda and I
4: do um, like I'm not my main agenda isn't the Irish language like I think language in general is a rather limited thing like music or dance are a lot more infinite a lot more expressive but language is unfortunately what humans use for so much of our communication that's why it's why so much of our communication is so limited but what I would love people I'd love myself first and other people is to tune into that wider sense of ourselves, that infinite spirit sense of ourselves, which immediately connects us with the land, because that it's made, any happiness in my life has been from that, any ease, any solution, any clarity, and so all like when I was twenty two living up in a cave in or in a cow shed in the Himalayas, drinking my own urine, like thinking my big thoughts. All I wanted to do was get people to 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 tune into that stuff, to tune out in the smallness and tune into the big. And I'm using now Irish language and food as a metaphor, as a way of helping people do that. So um, I'm aware that the show it's only only maybe about five percent of the audience or ten percent will will drop into that or will tune into it. But that's that's my agenda. And so I know most of the audience will take something away. They might take away just sourdough bread or they might take, oh, Irish has nice words. Or they might take away an idea of, oh, yeah, maybe the, the ways we thought about producing food and the thought about growing are not the best ways. So there's loads of different things people can get. I'm happy if they get any of them at all. Um, but ultimately, what I'd love is that I am reminded more to try and tune in to my spirit and to my surroundings in the land and that maybe others are too.
2: Great.
3: That's great. Thanks. Well, thank you
2: so much for being on the show and for talking with us today. It's wonderful. (laughs) Me de boejas, grima haka, thanks. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.
3: We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen@heritageradionetwork.org. at heritageradionetwork.org.